Good morning. It's so good to be with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from uh, Richmond, Virginia, and the future River City Baptist Church, as Ken mentioned. Uh, I, I'm originally from Virginia. My wife, my wife is from Northern Virginia. I'm from Charlottesville originally. So in many ways, this feels like a return home, even though we've never lived in Richmond. We have been in Louisville, Kentucky for the last 12 years, and last summer, our church there sent us out uh, to Richmond to establish a new gospel witness, to plant a church, and Lord willing, we will constitute together as a congregation officially next month. So thank you in advance for your prayers and support. It, it means the world to us. Uh, some of you may have noticed that I'm wearing a mask. I probably don't need to mention this, but just in case you think that the guest preacher today is standoffish uh, because he's wearing the mask and not shaking everyone's hand, I have a good reason. Uh, my sister is a missionary in Central Asia, and I have a plane ticket to go see her on Tuesday, and in order to go, I have to test negative tomorrow. So I am playing it safe uh, for that reason. Uh, in all seriousness, it's, it's such an honor to be here with you. My, my grandmother, Betty Spring, uh, as Ken mentioned, uh, was a charter member here at Kings Grant Baptist Church. Uh, she and my late grandfather, John Spring, came here 52 years ago this month and joined this church. My parents, uh, Linda Spring and Doug Smethers, were married here uh, by... In, in this very room by Pastor Holcomb 40 years ago, although I'm told that the altar was on that end of the aisle. And uh, I, I remember 1995 when, when my grand, grandfather died, uh, attending his funeral here. And then 10 years later in 2005, I had the chance uh, while I was in college to live with uh, my grandmother, Mrs. Spring, for the summer. And uh, I worked as a bellhop and valet at the Cavalier Hotel there on the oceanfront and got to attend and worship with you all that whole summer of 2005. And so needless to say, Kings Grant Baptist Church is a special place to me and to my family. And so it really is a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. When you hear the word gospel, gospel, what books of the Bible most immediately come to mind. I would, yeah, I would assume it would be either the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or some of the New Testament books that explain and expound the Gospel, Romans or Galatians, etc. I would be surprised if any of you immediately thought of an Old Testament book. And I would be downright shocked, as in I want you to come see me after the service so I can be impressed with you, if you thought of the obscure book of Zechariah. But this morning I hope to show you that the gospel shines bright in all of the scripture, including in a book like Zechariah. It's been said that the Old Testament is anticipation, the gospels are manifestation, acts is proclamation, the epistles are explanation, revelation is consummation, but your whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. He is the hero from beginning to end, not just of the New Testament, he is the hero in every single page of the Old Testament, and I hope to show you a glimpse of that 
this morning. So please turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. No shame whatsoever if you need to use the table of contents. Or you can just simply find the Gospel of Matthew, which I heard some of you shout out a couple moments ago, and turn two books to the left. Zechariah, as you're making your way there, I'll just say a few words by way of context. Zechariah is one of 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Now, they're called minor not because they're unimportant or because they're under the age of 18. They're, they're called minor because they're shorter prophecies compared to the heavy hitters like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Having said that, Zechariah at 12 chapters is actually the longest of the minor prophets. Well, it's, it's 500 years before Christmas, before the first coming of Jesus Christ. The, the Israelites here in Zechariah, they have returned from uh, decades of, of judgment, of exile in Babylon, and yet home is not the same. Much of Jerusalem is still in rubble, and the parts that have been rebuilt are pathetic compared to what they used to be. The, the glory that departed has not yet been restored. And so it's into this context of frustration and fear that God deploys a man named Zechariah to be his mouthpiece, to bring a word in season to the people. You see, before the exile, God's people struggled to believe that he would truly judge. But now after the exile, they're struggling to believe that he will truly restore. Zechariah is given a series of visions to communicate to the people, to give them hope, which is what brings us to chapter 3. We heard it read earlier, the, the, the prophet recounting what he saw. And that vision contains three main scenes, which we'll look at each in turn. Now, the first point will be the longest, okay? So if you're mathematically inclined and I, and I finish my first point, don't think, well, man, this is going to be a really long sermon uh, if everyone's that length. The first point is the longest, okay? Here they are, the three scenes in chapter 3. The accusation, the restoration, and the expectation. Scene one, the accusation. Scene two, the restoration. And scene three, the expectation. First of all, the accusation. Look again at how Zechariah begins. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. This is not like a boring movie that takes an hour for the plot to thicken. No, we're immediately in it, right? This is, this is, we are peering into God's very throne room, which has been transformed into a courtroom because there's a trial underway. Joshua, the high priest, and by the way, this is not Moses's successor, that Joshua was about 800 years prior. This is Joshua the high priest after the exile. He's standing before God, but he's not alone. Satan is there to accuse him. 
Now, why is all this happening here in this particular chapter? What, in other words, what is significant about this moment that makes the devil want to interrupt it? Well, here's why. Here's what it is. Satan is catching God in the act of making good on his promises, of restoring the exiles back to the land, back to Jerusalem, to rebuilding the temple, and restoring the high priest's position of representing the people before God. See, for seven long decades in Babylon, it looked like, it felt like none of this would happen, that God had given up on his people. But through the prophet Zechariah, God is looking his rebellious children in the eye and saying, I'm not done with you yet. I've restored you to the land physically, but I have not given up on you relationally. If you'll just humble yourselves and and stay loyal to me, then your future Israel is no longer bleak, but bright. And Satan hates this changing set of events. And so he comes to register an objection. He's standing beside Joshua as prosecutor. That's what the name Satan literally means, prosecutor. And what's the nature of his case? Well, it's not complicated. Joshua is clothed in filthy garments, which means he is a fitting stand-in for the people. This Hebrew word for filthy is not tame. It's not a PG-rated word. The word only shows up three other times in the Old Testament to refer to menstrual blood, human excrement, and vomit. Satan is like, some high priest you are, Joshua, You are a joke. You had the audacity to come in here looking like that. And you, God, if you are really holy as you say you are, you know you must expel him from your throne room. See, we read this scene and we think, okay, Joshua, the high priest, that makes sense. The Lord, that makes sense. These two characters make sense, right? The high priest would probably be in the the throne room of God. Satan. he's He's the abnormal one. He's the intruder. The unwelcome intruder. But notice, friends, Satan is not hiding in the shadows cowering in the corner, just waiting to kind of lob an accusation. No, he is standing there, firm-footed, chest out, because he's confident. His whole case is actually, Joshua, you're the unwelcome one here. You are the one who doesn't fit. Don't you see how dirty and pathetic you are? Well, how does Joshua reply? He doesn't. He doesn't even have a chance because someone else takes charge of the conversation. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord 
who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you? Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Stand down, Satan, and be quiet. I am the Lord, and you may not speak of my servant that way. I chose Jerusalem, and you're acting like I made a mistake. I snatched him out of the fire of Babylon because he and his people are precious to me, and you think you can show up in my throne room uninvited and tell me, tell me who's unwelcome? Here in verse 2, just verse 2, notice God's eternal love and his rescuing grace. He chose Jerusalem. He chose the Israelites, not the reverse. He set his affection on them, not because they were so good, but because he is so good. That's a love, by the way, friends, that is secure because you can't lose what you never earned. And those on whom he sets his eternal love become the recipients of his rescuing grace. In 1709, a house in England caught on fire. And the whole family escaped outside until they realized that the six-year-old, John, was still in the house. And amid all the chaos and the fear, a neighbor spotted little John in an upstairs window amid the dancing flames. And so various neighbors and family members started climbing on one another, shoulder upon shoulder, in order, until one finally was able to pull John out of the window before it was too late. And years later, after his conversion, John Wesley often reflected on that moment early in his life, and he loved to describe his life with the words of Zechariah 3, 2, a burning stick plucked from the fire. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, that is what you are too, chosen and Snatched, snatched from the eternal fire of God's justice that you deserve because of your sin, but that he has pulled you out of in love. Now, don't lose sight of the, the scene here. Eternal love, rescuing grace, these aren't just floating theological truths, just sort of random abstract doctrines. No, they are functioning in this story, e eternal love, rescuing grace. They are responses to satanic attack. God is spotlighting what he does best because Satan is busy doing what he does best, accusing, not just 2,500 years ago with Joshua, but this morning, this coming week in your own conscience, in your own heart. Brothers and sisters, here's the, th the thing you need to understand about Satan's accusations. They are not technically wrong. Maybe you didn't expect to hear that in a pulpit. I didn't misspeak. 
The thing about the devil's accusations against you is that they are not technically wrong. He walks into the courtroom prepared. He comes into your conscience prepared. And his case is strong because you are filthy. You are guilty before a righteous God. You are a moral failure, a hypocrite, an imposter, a joke. You are defiled from head to toe, from the inside out. And the idea of you, you standing, much less worshiping, as I saw you doing earlier, in the presence of a holy God is not just ludicrous. It's downright wrong and obscene. See, Satan doesn't just look at you and say, God, you have lowered your standard here. No, he says, God, you have violated your holy standard to let this person into your sparkling, flawless, immaculate courtroom. See, I used to think that the nature of Christ's advocacy for me, right? Satan's the prosecutor. Christ is the defense attorney. I used to think that the nature of Christ's advocacy for me, his intercession at the right hand of the Father, basically consisted of him constantly convincing God the Father to give Matt Smethurst another chance. Yes, Father, I, I, I know he blew it again, but, but let's just give him one more day. And you can imagine that my sense of security was only as strong as my feeling that that arrangement could hold. Because at what point was the Father just going to finally respond and say, enough, no more days. I, I've heard enough about this Matt guy. But friends, our, our security is not that flimsy. It, it, you know, the foundation of it isn't even just a matter of mercy. It's another thing you may not expect to hear in a pulpit. But here's what I mean. Your salvation is not hanging on the spider thread of God being lenient. It's not even merely hanging on God being merciful. Your salvation is hanging on the cross Jesus paid it all, and therefore you can have confidence that when you confess your sins, here's a verse you may be familiar with, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful. No, that's not what it says. He is faithful and just to forgive and purify you from all unrighteousness, which implies that for God not to forgive someone who is resting in Christ would be unjust. It would be wrong. That's how secure you are. Yes, Satan brings true accusations against you, but Christian, you need to know that when God plucked you from the fire, he did it with full view of all your filth, past filth, present filth, and future filth. He knew you had sinned against him and that you would continue to sin against him, but he wanted you anyway, and that has never changed. He has never once regretted saving you. But Satan 
has the gift of discouragement. And he will whisper accusation all day long if he must in order to keep you feeling down about your sin. But beloved, God did not give you a new heart for it to be perpetually torn up in pieces by discouragement. So instead of listening to the accuser, set your eyes on the love that God fixed on you from before the foundation of the world. And that would be good enough. But God doesn't just stop with silencing the accusations. He also reclothes the accused. Number two, the restoration. Look at verse four. The angel said to those who were standing before him, that is before Joshua, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. The scene is so exciting, I don't know if you, you noticed this earlier, that even Zechariah, who's recounting everything, he himself chimes in here. Verse 5, then I said, that's, then I, Zechariah said, put a clean turban on his head. In other words, hey, don't stop with the priestly robes, give him the priestly mantle so that he can be fully de de uh, decked out from head to foot. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Now notice, this is so important, how God responds to Joshua's defilement. It's the same way he responded to the accusations back in verse 2. Remember there, God did not respond to Satan's accusations by downplaying Joshua's sin. The response wasn't, Satan, you're overreacting. His sin isn't really that bad. No, he responded by pointing to his own grace. I selected and snatched these people out of the fire. How dare you accuse them? And likewise here in verse 4, it's not God saying, ah, I, I can see there's been a misunderstanding. These clothes are a mess, but it... it it's not as bad as it looks. No, God doesn't for a second deny or minimize the filth. He just removes it and replaces that disgusting laundry with radiant robes. And the most important word I just said was he. He does this. He is the actor. It's not, and, and if I were writing the story, this is probably how I would do it. It's not, look, Joshua, you are in a bind. You look terrible, but I'm going to give you a chance to go find a better outfit. Why don't you go out, find a laundromat, find a store, get some better clothes, and then come see me again? No, it's I have taken your iniquity away. I will clothe you. I will clothe you with pure vestments. All you need to do is stand there and receive this free gift. This is an enacted parable of our salvation, isn't it? Specifically, our, here's a big word, justification. That is our change of status before God, whereby we who believe, we who trust Christ, are pronounced righteous 
in the courtroom of heaven, we are pronounced to be in the right before him. This is a picture of another big word, imputation. God imputing or transferring our sin to Jesus and imputing or transferring Jesus's righteousness to us. Some have called this the sweet exchange. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he had lived your filthy life so that you, believer, could be treated as if you have lived his faultless life. Now, perhaps some of you just feel too filthy, a little too far gone, a little too dirty for God to really love and save you. Well, Joshua was in the same boat. He wore repugnant clothes, and yet the Lord gave him new ones. And all the Christians who are here this morning, not just the churchgoers, I just mean those who have repented and turned to Jesus in faith. All the Christians who are here this morning have the same story. They wore filthy clothes before a holy God, and yet the Lord still saved him. Friend, if you have never turned away from your sin, if you've never come to the realization that that there is nothing you've done. You, are, you cannot possibly be too dirty to vacate Jesus' offer of new impure clothes if you would only come to him in faith today. Whether this is your first time in a church building in a long time or whether you have been sitting in a church pew every Sunday for decades, if you would only come to him in faith, he will gladly give you new clothes. Well, the accuser has been silenced, Joshua has been reclothed, but God is not done. Third and finally, the expectation. Verse 6, the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Oh, friends, don't miss the order of events here. Again, this is not how you and I would have written the script. We would have put verses 6 and 7 before verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, Joshua is reclothed and cleansed. Verses 6 and 7, he's commanded. We would have put the command first, and if we... You know, if we got it right, if you get it right, then you get reclothed and cleansed. See, this is the good news of Christianity and only Christianity. You don't have to perform for God in order to be accepted by God. He accepts you and cleanses you because of Christ's performance. As a Protestant, I can say we are saved by works. His. And then we are liberated to walk in his ways because we want to bring pleasure to the one who has redeemed us. Here's another thing. What office did you... I've said it a few times. What official office does Joshua hold in Israel? Priest. 
priest. What in verse 7? Look at verse 7. What does God promise Joshua if he obeys? That he will rule. Now for us, that, you know, those just sound like words we'd expect to find in the Bible. But to the original hearers, this would have been a record scratch moment. A category confusion. Because in the Old Testament, priests served, but only kings ruled. And yet here we have both. A priest being described as a king. The camera lens takes on even clearer focus in chapter 6. Just flip briefly to chapter 6. Zechariah 6.11 Take the silver and gold and make a what? Crown and set it on the head of whom? The high priest. Friends, here's what's going on. In Zechariah 3 and 6, we are seeing one of the first flickers in the Old Testament of what will light up the pages of the New Testament. The reunion of the priesthood and kingship in one man. But this priest king is not the only flicker of the future. Look back in chapter 3 at verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. My servant the branch. My servant and the branch. Both official titles in the Old Testament, that are heavy with meaning. In Isaiah, my servant had become God's title for the Messiah who would suffer and die in place of the people. And the branch is God's title for the Messiah who will shoot up from the line of David and rise to rule the world. Now here's, here's what's neat. Do you remember verse 2? What was the metaphor in verse 2? We are what? A little burning stick. Jesus is a branch sprouting with life from the ground. The historical events of Joshua's day are a sign, that's the word in verse 8, for a greater day of fulfillment. In other words, God is recertifying his promises and saying, hey, I know you guys have blown it. I, I know that, that you, you've been in exile for the last seven decades and that things aren't what they once were here in Jerusalem and that you're walking through the rubble and the wreckage of your sin, but I am still planning to bring a greater priest, a true and better Joshua, who will come as a suffering servant and rise to rule the world. And what is the Lord's promise? etched in stone, look at the end of verse 9. Here's the promise. I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The coming of the servant, the branch, will coincide with the ejection of sin. And 500 years later, that day finally came. 
when Jesus hung on the cross, the earth shook, the sun was blotted out, graves were opened, and the covering of sin was removed from those who bore its guilt. I will remove the iniquity of this land, the sin of this land in a single day. And that, friend, is why Christ's dying words were not, it is almost finished. As if we are left to complete the task. No, Jesus drained, exhausted the cup of God's wrath so there wouldn't be a single drop left for you if you're hidden in him by faith. And this sudden removal of sin has spillover effects in the life of God's people. Verse 10, in that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Those of you who have seen the play Hamilton may recognize this phrase because George Washington loved to use it in uh, reference to the peace of independence and the, the freedom from military oppression. Everyone under their own vine and fig tree. But of course, it's, it's not a metaphor that's unique to Washington or original to America. It's an image that shows up throughout the Old Testament to describe the security and blessedness of life under the Messiah's reign. In other words, it's not just a feel-good phrase for a Broadway musical. There is an action involved. Did you notice that? Each of you will invite, invite his neighbor into this kingdom life. No, King's Grand, of course you're not ancient Israel rebuilding a temple in Jerusalem, but you are the church, the new temple of Christ, called to invite others into the freedom and the security of the king's reign. Christian, who are you inviting? You never know when that friend, that coworker, that family member, will suddenly breathe their last. And you can relax. This is not me loading you with a bunch of guilt and burden to save people because guess what? You can't. It's not your job to save them. I'm so grateful that's not the verb in verse 10. Your job is to simply invite them. God's job is to save them. Your job is simply to invite them. Well, in conclusion, even... Even though Zechariah 3 is still five long centuries away from Christ's arrival in Bethlehem, that first Christmas, I hope you've seen that this story sparkles like a diamond of gospel grace. We can marvel at it from so many angles, can't we? God says, have I not chosen Jerusalem? That's his eternal love. Is not this man a burning stick plucked from the fire? That's his rescuing grace. Remove his filthy garments. I'll clothe you with new ones. That's God covering us in the radiant righteousness of his son. We have a priest king, a suffering servant, a branch. We get to overhear, 500 years before Jesus, we get to overhear the words, I will remove sin in a single day, which is exactly what would occur on Good Friday. 
It's not a long chapter. (laughs) And yet, it can feel overwhelming to ponder, and trust me, overwhelming to preach. Because it's just so sprawling. I mean, there's so much here, and yet, there is actually a laser-like practical focus. Here's what it is. All of the facets and the angles on that diamond converge in service to the believer who hears and cannot shake the whispers of accusation. See, above all, what Zechariah 3 is pressing on your heart this morning is that this eternal, rescuing, righteousness-granting, sin-removing king, pretty impressive resume, also happens to be your personal defense attorney. And he is undefeated in court. And his case for you is infallible. That's why the Apostle John can write, 1 John 2, 1, My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I mentioned John Wesley earlier. When he was converted, there was another John in England who was busy trafficking human bodies in the transatlantic slave trade. And years later, when John Newton, who would go on to write Amazing Grace, when he was converted, you can imagine that given his wicked past, he would often hear the whispers of accusation, and so he would fight back. You can too. He would fight back by writing prayers like this. Perhaps you can relate. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that, sheltered by thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Or as another old hymnist put it, even more simply, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Christian, whether last night or 40 years ago, the sins you cannot forget, God does not remember. That's how defended and covered and secure you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you are our defense attorney and that your case for us is airtight. Not because we are easy to defend, but because you have already paid for the crimes. Help us this week to live and laugh and rejoice as if this is true. Because it is. 